Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Restoration. My name is Ryan. If you're new, we're just super glad you're here. And um, a lot of new faces, I can tell. Listen, we like new people um, a lot. Um, and uh, we want to just let you know that. So <clears throat> we, don't, we don't make you stand up and do anything weird. Uh, that would be awkward. But we do have something for you, and it's out at our info table. We actually have a, a welcome card. Uh, it's just got some info from, from us about our church, and it's also got a, a gift card to a great coffee shop. And we would just love for you to take that and have that today. So before I do some announcements, I want to just invite our offering to come for it. We're going to take our offering um, it's just a way for us to uh, worship God with our finances. Interesting enough, during this uh, money series we're talking about, um, and uh, if you're new today, we are talking a little bit about money today, um, but not in the way that you're probably used to hearing it. Um, so we just, we're just glad you're here and taking a courageous step in being here. A couple of quick announcements, um, and if we could like pull lights up a little bit in the room, it seems a little dreary. You guys feeling dreary? Okay, there we go. Um, now you're like, now I have to look at people. Yep, they're here. We're kind of in the round so that you kind of have to be, um, you have to stay awake. Otherwise people are going to know. A couple of quick things. Family Shelter Initiative is coming up. Some of you know what that is. Um, it's where we take care of some homeless families for a week at a time. And this is an all-church initiative. We are doing it on Thanksgiving week. So I don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're out of town. Maybe you're not. But we would love to have you jump on board with us. Um, you can go on the website and sign up for all the slots for meals and for hosting and all that fun stuff. But um, love to get that filled up this week and next week. And uh, if you've never done it before and you want to you ask us questions about how it operates, just let us know. We will fill you in. We have an all-church annual meeting in a few weeks talking about budget and stuff like that, but just kind of where we are as a church and where we're going, and uh, so it'll be immediately following the service on the 12th of November. Uh, we're finishing up reading the New Testament together. Some of you have been taking this challenge on, um, and so we actually jump into the book of Matthew this week. So if you've been following with us on the Immerse Bibles, um, Great. I'll just continue on. If you've fallen off the wagon, okay, if, like, if you're just like, let's be honest, I'm having a hard time keeping up, start over this week. Start over this week with Matthew. Um, don't feel like you have to like catch up on everything. Just jump in again, okay? And we're in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you need one of those Bibles, they're out at the info table. Um, Houston crew, we have a crew of people going to Houston, small group. Last chance to jump in if you want to go help uh, do some work down in Houston. It's the first weekend in November. And then we have Money Lab this week and Operation Christmas Child, if you haven't been a part of that yet. Um, as a family, this is a great way to do some stuff uh, in the holiday season with your kids or just by yourself. Um, just a great organization. So we have a table out there set up for that. Get rid of a few more boxes. And then Fireside Chat this week. We have a lot going on. So... A fireside chat is for ladies, uh, get together um, and just chat. I mean, it's just really chill. Um, so if you want to get to know some other women in the church uh, in a really um, relaxed way, it's not like bunko tournaments or anything crazy. It's just like hanging out, you know. So I never really understood bunko, but um, not making fun of it. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. 
like the Subaru crack, but um, I just I don't know. I'm still paying for that one. Hey, let me pray real quick and let's get moving. God, we are uh, so thankful to be together today. My my guess is um, there's a lot on our minds, a lot on our hearts, a lot of life stuff we're struggling with. It's hard sometimes to refocus and um, to put our worth, the things that we find worthy, in front of you um, and you in front of them. So God, guide our hearts and our minds this morning as we, as we dive into what it looks like to give you our allegiance. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So a little bit about... Um, our church, especially if you're new, uh, one of the things that you need to know is that we, we're intentionally the way we are, and we are that way because we believe in God transforming us um, slowly and through obedience and through all these other uh, slow practices in our lives. And so we kind of look at our church as more of a, a crock pot and not a microwave, if that makes any sense to use that analogy. And, and we, we're in this series called Fighting Inertia, and we're talking about the grip of money in our lives and on our hearts. And the thing that's interesting about it is that it's really causing us to wrestle, right? And it's causing us to wrestle, and, and maybe we get defensive and frustrated, and, and all these things are happening in our hearts when we talk about money. And one of the things you need to know that we value, right? It's like one of our core values around here. Let me just read it to you. It says, we value the tension and mystery inherent in faith. And we look for God to move in often surprising ways. And what we've noticed is that when we kind of uh, face the difficult things that scripture says, and we face those together as a community, there's something that happens in us. There's like a, there's like a, a growth that happens in us that, it's hard to explain. And this series has been uh, really tough, and I'm really proud of you as a church for uh, giving, it, uh, giving it a shot, I guess, um, giving the words of Jesus a shot because he says some hard things, and, and, it, and it causes us to have to wrestle with things in a new way. We've tackled tough things. We've talked about uh, poverty and the poor and our responsibility towards the poor. Um, and, and we've talked about just what grips our heart, and we've talked about what the center of the kingdom is and what we need to shoot for. We use the metaphor of a merry-go-round that you see in this picture, and I told the story the first week about how when I was a kid, we had this game where we tried to stay on it as long as we could to earn a dollar, and um, I found that the best way to do it was to stay in the center and, and we use this imagery and this metaphor to talk about how money has a way of pulling us. It has an inertia to it. it. It has a way of just getting us out of really what the center of God's purpose is for us. And, um, and so we're going to continue with this a little bit today as we're going to wrap it up. Um, Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 3. Um, let me just uh, lay this out for you a little bit. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is John just setting up Jesus. And he says, and saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who, is, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. 
Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Now, this is a prophecy out of Isaiah that's actually in all four Gospels, which means it's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's just kind of uh, like the really the essence and the heart of what's going on with who Jesus is and what he's there for. And the interesting thing is that that word prepare the way for the for the Lord is actually the Greek word hodas. And that means way or road or path or journey. And it's all over um, the scriptures. It's actually a word picture for a way of life, a certain way to live life, if that makes sense. And it's used by the writer Matthew, but it's also used by all the other gospel writers. In fact, 62 times the gospel writers use it, and over 100 times in the New Testament that, that word hodas is used. And for example, the Sermon on the Mount, we, did, we talked about this last spring um, the end, the very end of the Sermon on the Mount says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the hodas that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So for Jesus, there's more than one way on offer. Like there's more than one way presented to us. And we talked about alternative stories that the world tells us and how the scriptures tell us a different way. And uh, so he says that there's a broad road that ends in destruction, and actually it's pretty popular. It's actually something that's um, pretty easy to find. But then he talks about an alternative road, and it's a narrow one, and it's life itself. It's actually the essence of what life is supposed to be. And so it raises the question, is Jesus talking about the future or the present? Is he talking about what we think about heaven? Or is he talking about now? And he's talking about both. It's actually both. He's actually saying that this road is now and it leads something. See, the, the future is more than um, a continue. It's, it, it is a continuation of the present. It's not something different. So you're actually becoming eternity now, is what Jesus is saying. By the way you live your life and the practices you have in your life, you're actually becoming eternity, one way or the other. Does that make sense? So, so in my growing up years, I mean, I kind of think, well, um, you go down this road, and then when you die, you go to heaven, and so that's the narrow gate. And then the other gate's to hell, but really, how we live our lives actually has something to do with these, these paths we're on. So listen to this, Matthew 22, and this is also in all four Gospels. It says, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. They said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way, the hodas of God in accordance with the truth. A couple things here. They, they call him a teacher. They call him a rabbi. But what did he teach? Like his whole focus was the way that God intended humans to live. The way of God. That was his whole goal. And then all the gospels talk about the hodas, um, the way, and, and the early church does too. There's a quick snapshot here of some of the verses in Acts. 
Um, the first one is Acts 9. It says, so that, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and this is Paul. Um, there's just a straight slide for this, Angela. Uh, there's, a, there's a, Paul talks about uh, a group of, of, of he's, he's searching, actually in the book of Acts, he's searching for people who follow the way. And it says in verse 9, it says, So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. In verse 19, it says, But some of them uh, became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Here's my favorite one right here. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. So for you Star, Star Wars fans. Um, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Notice how it's capitalized, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. And then it goes on and on and on. And then King Felix, the Felix is, says, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Like even the rulers of, of the, the Roman society knew about the way. Okay? So this is just a snapshot of all this has happened. And so long before people were labeled Christians or the Christian faith or anything like that, they were known as the people of the way, like a way of following Jesus, like a way of living life. This is 100 times in the New Testament, over 700 times it's equivalent in the Old Testament. So if you think this is just like a, 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 like a one-off metaphor, it's not. It's all throughout Scripture, cover to cover. It's, it's what the Bible is saying. And the reason why this is so important is because the way of Jesus is just that. It's a way of life. Does that make sense? So it's more than just a set of biblical ideas, and it's more than just uh, a theology. It's more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's like way bigger than that. It's about how we live. So in my growing up, um, some of the uh, things I was taught at church and things like that was focused on what to believe, okay, and what not to believe. Does that make sense? Like, these are the things I need to think and believe are true. These are the things that I need to say, those aren't true. But little of it was about lifestyle. It's how I lived. It was what I thought, what I believed, what, what I could um, defend, you know. Like, defend your faith, you know. <laughs> that whole deal. Like, well, how about live it? No one ever, I didn't get a lot of that. See, following Jesus is the whole way of life. The, the gospel writer John talks about this, um, this claim that Jesus actually gives life in, in a number of different places. He says things like, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. He says, if you have some, uh, I have some that they may have, I've come that they might have life. Sorry, my notes were misspelled. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is offering life. But we, can we all agree that the lifestyle piece, that's the hard part? Like, it's a whole lot easier to just memorize some facts and to learn uh, nifty ways to argue and defend your faith or whatever, right? It's easier to do Bible studies than it is to actually live some of this. The human heart, Dallas Willard says, is very complex. The fact that someone trusts God at one level does not mean that they have fully surrendered their life to him. Would you agree with that? Like there's pieces of our lives that we're just like, 
yeah, that one's off my list, God. So in the Gospels, Jesus is always tinkering with people. He's always like messing with people. Uh, you got the Samaritan woman who she's at the well. You got the rich young ruler we talked about last week, Dan talked about. Then you have all the religious elite. And Jesus is always like messing with them and tinkering with them and, and seeing kind of where they're coming from. And the main announcement was from Jesus was that there's this new kingdom. There's this new kingdom and that he's the king. And that he's ushering in this new kingdom. And it requires more. And he goes after the religious elite all the time. He says, it's not about your religious observance. It's not about that at all. It meant losing your life to find it. It meant taking up your cross and following. It meant selling everything you have and giving it to the poor. And see, our Western understanding of religion has always had this uh, mixing, right? This mixing of whatever our religious focus is with our modern lifestyle. So we have a way of living in America, in the West, in the suburbs, okay? And what we've done, we've added religion to it. So we've added Jesus to it. We've added uh, whatever to it. And um, it's kind of like that phrase, this is a classic phrase, and you know this, um, this phrase, just, just invite Jesus into your heart. You know, we've heard that, right? Uh, we've just invited Jesus. You know, you, what you really need to do is invite Jesus into your heart. But Jesus never says that. <laughs> Ever. Like nowhere does Jesus say that. And so what we've got is this whole, like, what do we do with this? It feels like, and this is my own life, it feels like I have a certain kingdom, I have a certain way of living my life, and I add Jesus to it. Like I sprinkle Jesus on top, or <laughs> Jesus is like a shot of something in my life latte. Does that make sense? Like it's an ingredient to my life, Jesus is, versus something totally different. Hopefully that makes sense to some of you. Um, so, for instance, like the word faith, let's talk about this word faith as we wrap this whole series up on Monday. Faith is something we throw around a lot. We throw around the word faith. And it's interesting when we talk about language because, like, do you know the Inuit language up, uh, up in Alaska, they actually have 10 different words for snow to describe different types of snow. 10 different words. We have one word for love. So you can love tacos and your kids. And it's like the same word. Think about the word faith. And every culture has a way of kind of defining it. It's called determinative language. Meaning when I say the word faith to you, like, you just got to have faith. Like, what does that mean, right? And then we take our cultural understanding of the word faith, and we apply it to verses we read in Scripture. So, the word faith is an interesting word biblically. It's an interesting word because... It has a whole lot more meaning than we really understand. Now, we understand the word faith as meaning acknowledging something is true or real, like even if you don't see it, you know? Like I have faith in this or that or her or him. 
But in Scripture, it's much more than belief. See, in Scripture, the range includes ideas that aren't always associated with our common understanding of the word. Words like reliability, confidence, assurance. Those are something we can jive with when it comes to faith. But what about the word fidelity, faithfulness, commitment, and pledged loyalty? That's something that Scripture talks about a lot. So when someone says, I'm saved by my faith in Jesus, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean? I mean, George Michael says we have to have it. A lot, he says, over and over and over and over again. And, and it's just, what is the engine behind this saving piece? Is it just agreeing that the gospel happened, that Jesus died on the cross? See, scholars have done a great deal of work, and this is going to be really helpful for us as we wrap this up. Done a great deal of work dissecting the, the word gr in Greek for faith, which is pistis. The word pistis. And if you want a really cool book to read, if you want to nerd out, there's a great book called Reading the Bible Through Western Eyes. It'll be really helpful for you if you're interested. Um, just different cultural pieces and thought forms. One of the things that the, the Greek scholars did in studying this word faith is they actually looked where this word was used in other places outside of the Bible during the time the Bible was written. Does that make sense? So political writings and historical writings and letters and all these different places, the word faith or pistis was used. And what's interesting is there's two examples here I want to show you. Listen, listen to this example. And let me just tell you, uh, let me just let this sink in a little bit. There's a Jewish general named Josephus. And in his autobiographical account of the Jewish-Roman War, which is right around 66 AD, he talks about a moment where he urged a rebel leader of some troops. He said this. Repent and believe in me. He said, repent and have pistis in me. That's what he said to this rebel general. Does that sound familiar to any language you may have just read in Matthew or in Mark? Where, Jesus, where John says, repent and believe? Um, our own cultural perspective on the word repent is like, well, I just got to say sorry for some little sins in my life, like greed and lust and listening to country, <laughs> things like that, like those kind of sins. But like the, the real meaning of repent actually has a whole lot to do with pledging loyalty to somebody else, to actually changing sides, changing teams. Pledging allegiance to a different leader. Does that make sense? And so that's one, um, that's one uh, uh, example of it. That, and the next one's this. This is really interesting. This comes out of 1 Maccabees. And it's just part of the Apocrypha. Listen to this. King Demetrius, it says, to the nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard it and rejoiced. Now continue still to keep pistis with us, and we will repay you with good for what you have done for us, what you do for us. So King Demetrius is asking the Jews to continue to show pistis, which is pledged loyalty, okay? Pledged loyalty or allegiance to him rather than his rival. 
Like, show your loyalty to me and not them. Pledge your faith to me and not to them. It's really interesting, isn't it? For example, look at Ephesians chapter 2. And this is Paul writing. And this is really interesting because he says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through pistis, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So what, what is Paul, Paul's idea of pistis is actually a deeper meaning than I think our contemporary version And, you know, just like, you know, we have these ways of thinking about certain words, there's actually ways we think about culture, cultural things that are just normal. So, for instance, we think it's just normal to live in a consumeristic world, right, where we can just go out and buy whatever we want whenever we want to, right? And we get angry when our two-day Amazon Prime isn't here in two days. I mean, it's just the cultural aquarium we live in and we just breathe in, right? And, and we know what freedom is like, and we just, you know, you can't take my rights. You know, we just, we just know it. We just live it. There's a cultural moment, a cultural peace that Paul lived in that had a whole lot to do with grace and faith. See, whenever those two words, grace and faith, come and they're really close to each other in Paul's writings, they mean something. They actually mean something about a patron and a client. Now, a patron, this is really important for us, okay? So a patron is somebody who was of higher standing, and they had the ability to make things happen based on their status in Roman world. And a patron, what they would do is they would offer gifts, they would offer help to clients who were people who didn't have that kind of status. Maybe they were slaves, or they were foreigners, or they just didn't have the pedigree that a client, uh, a patron would have. And so a, a client, your goal as a patron would, do, would be to, to gather as many clients as you could and have as many people as you could that would call you patron. And your goal as a client, if you had a patron who went to bat for you and helped you get a loan or helped you get a better uh, standing with your master or whatever it was, your goal was to show that patron faith. Show that patron pledged loyalty. So whenever Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, what Paul is basically assuming that everybody knows is this patron-client relationship. That a patron gives freely this gift that you can't deserve on your own as a client. And what he's saying, he's alluding to this idea that Jesus is our ultimate patron. And our duty at this point is to pledge fidelity and loyalty to Jesus. Does that make sense? So you can see how scripture talks more than just believing something is true, right? I mean, believing something is true is the first step, right? Pledging fealty to Jesus would be the second step. But then there's this piece that I think we miss in our world. It's this idea of enacted loyalty, meaning obedience to Jesus. And so when we talk about faith, when we talk about what this looks like, I think this has huge meaning for us. And when we talk about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus and we understand what this looks like to follow him and and pledge our allegiance to Jesus, it's a whole different ballgame. We even see some of this patron-client stuff in Matthew 
um, where there's this, um, this leper that comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Lord, if you're willing, you're, you're, you're the patron, I'm the client. And there's this centurion. Do you remember the centurion who's a Gentile and he didn't consider himself worthy enough to be around Jesus, so he sent some of his own clients to Jesus? So this idea of allegiance, it's a powerful thing. It's this mental affirmation. It starts with this mental affirmation that the gospel is true. But it doesn't stop there. It continues. It's professing that Jesus is Lord. And then it's enacting this loyalty to Jesus that through obedience to him is seen. There's an author named Matthew Bates. He writes a great book about all of this. But he says in his book, the key point is that true Pistis is not an irrational launching into the void. You know, like that, um, uh, what's this, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark scene where he like just steps off the ledge and everybody's like, what a great view of Pistis, of faith. That's really not what it was. It's just stupid. <laughs> so it's this launching, it's not this launching into the void, but a reasonable action-oriented response grounded in the conviction that God's invisible underlying realities are more certain than any apparent reality. Does that make sense? It's this action-oriented response about something we can't see, but we believe to be true. 1 Timothy 6.12, listen to this in light of how we've been defining faith. Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of pledged loyalty. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he's talking about how like this, this whole eternal life piece starts now with how we react in action to Jesus. Another quote from this guy, Matthew Bates, listen to this. He says, true pistis is not an irrational leap into the dark, but a carefully discerned response to God's reign through Jesus over his kingdom and that kingdom's frequently hidden growth. See, the invitation of Jesus was and still, come and follow me. He says, I will give you life to the fullest. Your life, is a, your life and my life is a byproduct of our lifestyle in how we follow Jesus, right? So our relationships, are your relationships out of whack? Uh, the time and the money and the rhythms and the rest in your life. So if you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe that. Bumper sticker, right? It's actually this lifelong piece that you move past agreeing with something and doing it. You know, Paul, Paul says that faith without works is dead. And we get cringe with that one, right? We're like, well, what does that mean? He's saying pledged uh, allegiance without pledged loyalty, without enacted loyalty, doesn't really mean anything at all. 
See, the gospel is the good news that God, the creator of the cosmos, has come to rescue us from sin and heal and renew all things in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to firmly establish his kingdom with and through his chosen people in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the climax of the gospel isn't you being forgiven. The climax of the gospel is Jesus being king. That's the climax of the gospel. And so when it comes to your money, let's just go back down. So when it comes to your money, you, you can master Dave Ramsey's principles. And you can get out of debt. And you can give exactly 10%. And you can still be a slave to life. You can still be a slave. The inertia of money could still have its toll on you. And so if we're continually working on becoming people of the future, meaning people who envision the end, and because of that, how Jesus says that this will all go down, that we will live differently in the here and now, then it has everything to do with our finances. And it has everything to do with, see, finances isn't a percentage issue. I mean, when we talk about money, it's not, but you know, give 10%. You've heard it all. You, I knew a guy that did the 10%, save it, 10%, give it, live on 80. That, that has nothing to do with allegiance to Jesus. So it's not a percentage issue, it's an allegiance issue. Does that make sense? And so you have to look at your own life and your own heart and, and how money is kind of tied up in you. And look to see, I mean, here's, here's the deal. It's an allegiance issue, and he, and he talks to the rich young ruler about it. And it's an allegiance issue, and it's all throughout the Old Testament with the people of Israel. And it's an allegiance issue in the New Testament. If you read the beginning of the New Testament with the Acts, and they're just giving and selling and giving things to each other, and, and it's beautiful, and their numbers grew because of that. And it's an allegiance issue for us. It just is. Scripture tells an alternative story. It's an alternative good news in the Roman Empire, and it's an alternative good news to our age of consumerism. It just is, and it's hard. So let me just just kind of wrap this up. Like if you've been a part of this for a while, and this is, um, maybe you're here, and you're kind of like, okay, this Jesus is a pretty radical guy. He says some pretty hardcore stuff, and... Um, He's, he's, he's asking me to do all this really hard stuff. No, Jesus' invitation is for life. That's what the invitation is. And I'm, I'm encouraging you to taste it. Like, taste it. Like, try it. Like, taste and see that the Lord is good in this. Like, taste and see that there's life in this. And I'm not asking you to invite Jesus into your heart. I'm actually inviting you to a Give Jesus your allegiance. Which is way better. It's way more real. It's way more true.